Have you ever noticed that some people never volunteer for anything? It might be at work or at home or maybe even at church. Um, others, though, volunteer all the time for special projects or to help with the company picnic or to write up minutes from a task force meeting. Now, if you're one of those that always volunteers, you hate the type that never volunteers, those scumbags. What makes it worse is it often doesn't seem to hurt them. They get promoted at the same rate as everyone else. But you, the one who volunteers for everything out of duty and responsibility, gets stuck with just more work. Now, occasionally, there's a special project, something that looks intriguing and kind of fun. I remember an opportunity I once had when I was working at General Mills to be part of a team to help redesign the corporate logo that went on all the company-wide packaging. It was actually more complicated than I initially thought, but it was a great challenge. I worked with some terrific people, um, and it was a lot of fun, so I didn't mind the extra work. But more often, since I'm one of those that tends to raise my hand more than I ought, I resented the thankless tasks that went for those of us who raised our hands more often. Now, I'm sure you'll agree that there is a big difference between volunteering for something you really want to do and something you just get suckered into because you thoughtlessly raised your hand, or worse, felt pressured by a boss who nominated you for a special assignment, right? You know, there's a debate about the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. The argument is that once the ball got rolling, events just spun wildly out of control. That means that Jesus' death was just an unfortunate accident, a sort of perfect storm made up of jealous local authorities, the passions of an angry mob, and a hapless, witless, naive Jesus. If he just had a little bit more common sense or cooler heads had prevailed, the sordid scene might not have played out the way that it did, except that is not the way Jesus' biographers tell us the story. They make it clear that Jesus was not naive, that he was not caught off guard, that this is not the case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Instead, he knew this would happen a long time before it did. In fact, his death was voluntary. It was part of his mission, his purpose. It was no accident. It was God's will and Jesus, despite tremendous personal sacrifice, went willingly to the cross. Now, you might be skeptical, and that's fine. The story of the last 24 hours of Jesus' life has some challenging stuff in it. For one, it makes an audacious claim that someone rose from the dead. And we all know that dead people don't walk out of funeral homes. So I, don't wanna, I wanna try to do more today than just tell you, just trust me on this one. But first, this issue of whether Jesus got caught up into something that just spiraled out of control, the evidence doesn't support it. In fact, on a number of occasions, Jesus let those around him in on the story. He let them know what was about to come. There were hints early on, but eventually later, especially beginning about a year before Jesus died, he was very specific with his disciples about what they were to expect and what would come during Holy Week. In one instance, he, told his, he asked his disciples a question. He said, who do people say that I am? And they gave a series of various answers. And then Peter, with great conviction and clarity, something we know was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Matthew tells us that Jesus said at that point, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day rose, be raised from the dead. So he's pretty clear, isn't he? What he said wasn't popular, even with that friendly audience of his disciples. Peter was particularly incensed and thought it was his duty to prevent Jesus from making a mistake. 
He said, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Let me give you my paraphrase. Stop this nonsense, get your act together, and start acting like a real Messiah. It seems like he was doing Jesus a favor. At least that's the way he thought about it. But Jesus was determined. He said, I must go. It's absolutely necessary. Peter and the others didn't get it. They didn't understand. The prevailing idea which they had bought into was that a military leader was coming who would emerge to throw off Roman rule to bring about the restoration of a triumphant Israel. But Jesus said, no, I didn't come to start a revolution. Instead, I will be arrested, tried, convicted, flogged, and nailed to a cross. But then I'll be raised again on the third day. That's the way it has to be. A few months later, Jesus repeated this prediction, and when he did, Matthew tells us that the disciples were filled with grief. And then at the beginning of the trip that would take them to Jerusalem and to the events of Holy Week, Jesus reminded them for a third time of what he'd previously said. He said, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and on the third day, you'll be raised to life. Still, they didn't get it. To reinforce what was about to happen was not accidental. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus couldn't have been clearer. What was about to happen was the very purpose for which he'd come. And then one more time, on Tuesday of Holy Week, just after he'd been welcomed to town as a hero, Jesus again told them what was happened, and this time he was very specific about when it would take place. As you know, he said, the Passover is two days away. So this is Tuesday. He's talking about the events that will begin on Thursday, what we call Monday, Thursday. And he said, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. By this time, the religious authorities were plotting to have Jesus arrested and killed, and they found an accomplice. It was actually a bit of a surprise. Where they found this accomplice, it was one of Jesus' inner circle, Judas Iscariot, who for 30 pieces of silver, that's about $5,000 today, agreed to lead them to him. Then very late on Thursday evening, Jesus again acknowledged that this was going to take place. After the meal that they had shared together, they went out to a place on the Mount of Olives, a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Aware of what was about to be, take place, Jesus prayed alone to his father. Three times it says he fell onto his face on the ground and prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup, the whole events that would take place in the next day, be taken from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. And that was not easy for him. He knew it was expected of him, but in his humanity, suffering and death were not what he would have chosen. He prayed for another option, but only if it was God's will. So he accepted God's plan and willingly obeyed. We need to see Jesus as someone who was not trapped by fate. Several times during his life, including once when he was a very young child, he avoided death. But not now. He knew that this was his moment. This was his time. Returning to his disciples, he told them that the time had come. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of sinners. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Jesus was about to be cornered at this point, and at least one of his disciples, Peter, was ready to fight it out. So he drew a sword, but Jesus said, put your sword back. 
Do you think I cannot call upon my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And then to reinforce the choice he's made, he says this. He says, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that what it says must happen in this way? And this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then we're told that every one of the disciples deserted him and fled just as he had predicted just a few hours before. So while on the surface, it looks like Jesus is just an innocent victim in the hands of a lynch mob, it wasn't that way at all. What's clear from the way that Matthew tells the story is that he could have avoided it, but he didn't. Once arrested, Jesus faced a series of courtroom trials. In the first, he was silent when he could have defended himself. In the second trial, the one before Pilate, he refused to answer even the simplest of questions. And this amazed Pilate. He said, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or crucify you? And without batting an eye, Jesus said, you'd have no power over me if it were not given you from above. At this point, it was Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who was in control. He was struggling to keep things calm in the city. That was the preeminent value in the entire Roman world. They wanted these troops to keep control of things. This notion of a new king was the last thing that Pilate needed. He didn't care a lick about the theological disputes among the Jews. His task was to keep his territory in check. So in order to keep things under control, Pilate, not the high priests, because they had no authority to commit someone to death or to sentence Jesus to death, Pilate chose crucifixion, and he chose it because it was the most public kind of execution, a not-so-subtle warning not to mess with Rome. So far as Pilate was concerned, this would be the end of the matter, but of course we know it wasn't, but that's getting ahead of the story, because at this point, Pilate's troops took charge. They ridiculed Jesus, they mocked him, they spat upon him, they flogged him with an inch of his life, And to great laughter, they placed a crown made of prickly thorns on his head, and they pressed it into his scalp. And then they crucified him with two rebels, one on each side of him. And while he hung on the cross, those passing by hurled insults at him. You, who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. They mocked him, saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. If he's the king of the Jews, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. And Jesus remained silent, willingly suffering it all. What is ironic about what they said is that Jesus could have done exactly what they suggested. He could have called 10,000 angels, and they would have come. But he didn't. He knew his purpose. He knew God's will, and he willingly submitted to the pain and humiliation of the cross. Because Jesus knew the plan. He knew that one day it would all come to this. That's why nothing that ever happened to him in his life ever came by surprise or accident. And that includes his death on the cross. Just before the events of Holy Week, he told his disciples, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I give it up willingly. And that's exactly what happened. He wasn't the poor, hapless volunteer who didn't have the sense to keep from raising his hand. He willingly humbled himself. He became one of us. He was misunderstood, unappreciated, and despised for much of his time in the public eye, and he willingly submitted to a sham trial, an unjust verdict, and an undeserved sentence. It was about three in the afternoon when an unnatural darkness came over the land. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then a few minutes later, he cried out one more time, 
and breathed his last breath. This is really important. Jesus was not powerless to prevent what happened. This was no accident. His death on the cross didn't happen because the event spiraled out of control. It was not the nails that put Jesus on the cross and held him there until he died because without his consent, no one could have harmed a hair of his head. He was not a victim, but willingly gave up his life. Why? Out of love for each one of us. But Jesus did not stay there. After death, his body was quickly prepared for burial. Uh, He was placed in a tomb. A big stone was rolled in front of the entrance. And because it was late in the day, beginning just before the Jewish Sabbath, Jesus' followers went home deeply sad and dismayed at what had happened. And I know what some say. They say that because Jesus predicted all these things would happen, that he would be killed and he would be raised from the dead, because they'd heard those predictions, his followers knew about this. They were determined to keep the story going, so they stole his body, they hid it, and made up this resurrection story. Except, except that this is not what they expected. It's not what they understood. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And they certainly did not expect him to come back from the dead. Everything changed, though, on Sunday morning. Jesus' female disciples went to the tomb to anoint his dead body, not a living one. When they saw that the stone had been rolled back and the tomb was empty, they were surprised, and an angel told them that Jesus was not there, the body had not been taken as they assumed, but he had risen just as he said. They left the tomb bewildered, but also filled with joy. Trying to sort everything back, they ran back to the disciples. But according to Luke, the disciples didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. John adds that they did not understand that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The idea that the disciples made this whole thing up just doesn't hold water. They spent the weekend hiding, despondent, and crushed that their Messiah, far from leading an army to victory over the Romans, instead had been mocked and murdered by them. It took a day or so for them to finally sort things out. Jesus appeared, first to the women, then to the others, and the picture that was once murky began to become more clear, although it would take a long time for them to sort everything out. Jesus had indeed risen from the dead, just as he said. Now, I know the idea of a resurrection is difficult for many to accept, maybe for some of you. But what makes it so compelling is that it was so unexpected. The disciples, the one who would have had to have stolen a body and hidden it, if it were a hoax, were the very ones who were least prepared to believe it. The idea of a crucified Messiah, rather than to be celebrated, would have been received to them as a failure. So why would they argue for something so improbable, so unexpected, unless they believed that it really happened? There are, the biographers of Jesus tell us, two halves to this story. There's Jesus' death and there's the resurrection. So what's the significance of each of these halves of the story? Why does it matter that Jesus willingly submitted to the pain and humiliation of the cross? And why does it matter that he really rose from the dead? Well, first, let's take Jesus' death. The Christian tradition teaches us that sin separates us from God, and that may seem at first like a strange notion. But if you think for just a moment, we experience this all the time in our relationships with one another. Maybe you've offended someone close to you, or maybe you've said something unkind behind the back of a coworker and somehow they find out. Or maybe you've disappointed someone or failed to fulfill a promise. Think how hard it is to look in that person's eye. 
if like that. It's like that with God, only worse, because we have lots of ways to go wrong. Pride and lust and deceit and gossip and apathy and indifference and racism and lying and slander and laziness and infidelity and unfaithfulness, anger, hypocrisy, cowardice, greed, envy, and selfishness. The list goes on and on. These are the things that create a barrier between us and God. And that's the bad news, that we're more sinful than we ever have thought. But the good news is this, that God loves you more than you ever imagined. Because the first part of the story is that Jesus died on the cross for us. St. Peter, who was one of Jesus' followers, one of his disciples, later, years later, put this in perspective this way. He said, he, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Without his loving sacrifice, none of us would be saved. And that's why Jesus once said, um, one of his disciples, John, recorded, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Later, St. Paul said, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for this. Now, I realize that the idea of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins seems uncomfortable, seems even offensive to some. And I understand that because it's an awkward concept. The Christian tradition teaches us that sin creates a barrier or a debt that needs to be paid. Its effects can never be ignored or willed away. And that means that Jesus' death on the cross is a vicarious payment for all of human sins. And it's through this that forgiveness is granted to each of us on the basis of faith. And I know we struggle with this sacrifice part of the story. But we also are not willing to give up the idea that when someone has messed up, that a debt needs to be paid. When someone defrauds us of money, we want them to pay it back. My parents once engaged with a contractor to remodel their kitchen or replace some kitchen cabinets and a countertop, and the person ran off with the money. And their initial response was, we want justice. If someone kills another person, the most extreme perhaps of all the crimes we can imagine, we want justice. The truth is that we don't want the Hitlers and Stalins and Harvey Weinsteins of the world to go free without facing justice. Sin requires someone to bear the cost. In July of 1941, when a prisoner went missing at Auschwitz, the camp commander ordered that 10 men die in this escaped prisoner's place. So the prisoners were assembled and 10 men were chosen, and one of those chosen was a man named Francis Guy Nietzschek. He cried out, my wife, my children. At that moment, a small man stepped forward and he took off his cap and he said, I'm a Catholic priest. I don't have a wife and I don't have any children. I want to take this man's place. To everyone's amazement, his offer was accepted and Father Maximilian Kolbe was taken with the others to a standing cell. They weren't even allowed to sit down and they were left to starve to death. According to an eyewitness, Father Colbe led them in prayers and hymns, and one by one, the prisoners died until only Maximilian Colbe was left. Impatient because they wanted the cell space for other prisoners, he was given a lethal injection on August 14, 1941, and he died. 41 years after his death, in 1982, his death was put in proper perspective. In a crowd with 150,000 people gathered in St. Peter's Square in Rome, Francis Guy Nietzsche, 
was the first to speak, and he said to the crowd that was assembled there, I want to express my thanks for the gift of life. Pope John Paul II then said that Maximilian Kolbe's death was a victory like the one won by our Lord Jesus Christ because he gave himself, he gave up his life out of love. Francis Guy Nietzsche died in 1995 at the age of 93 years old after spending the rest of his life telling everyone about the love of this man who died in his place. In an even more amazing and wonderful way, Jesus died in your place and in my place. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, and he gave himself for you. On the cross, Jesus suffered physically, but he also suffered spiritually because he was bearing upon him your sin and my sin, our guilt and our shame. The prophet Isaiah once predicted the death of Jesus, and he said it this way, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And so it's the second half of the Easter story that seals the deal. The resurrection shows that once and for all, Jesus died defeating sin and death with his resurrection. So on this Easter Sunday, remember that Jesus lived his life with intentionality and purpose. He volunteered. He went willingly to his death. That he lived the life that we ought to have lived but did not. He died the death that we deserved in our place and rose again, showing his power over sin and death. In just a moment, we're going to pray. And when we do, if you've not yet made a decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ, remember that it's available to you, that it's fairly straightforward. Simply tell Jesus that you're sorry, that you believe he rose from the dead, and then commit to follow him. St. Paul once summarized it very succinctly in this way in Romans 10:9. He said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed that Jesus would so intentionally pursue the purpose that you had for his life, that he would willingly submit to the shame, the humiliation, the suffering of his death on the cross. And he did it for us. Father, we acknowledge the debt we owe, the burden of the sins in our lives, the way that they separate us from you. Thank you for Jesus' sacrificial death through which we find forgiveness in life and for the resurrection that shows once and for all his victory over death and the new life we can find in him. Father, we're sorry for our sins and we believe that in the resurrection we are forgiven. And so we place our trust in you knowing that our eternal destiny is secure in him. Amen.